Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. James chapter 5. And as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in other locations around Metro DC as our church family, as well as those online who are physically unable to be with us today. It's good to be together around God's Word. And for those of you who are visiting with us, my name is David Platt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are really glad you're here. I do want to remind everyone in our church family in particular, although anyone is welcome to come, of a really significant gathering that's happening tonight in this room here at Tyson's for people from across all our locations coming together as we install Mike Kelsey as a lead pastor among us. I, I cannot wait for this gathering, this moment, not just for him and Ashley, but for this moment for our church. And especially if you're a member of, a church, of our church family, I want to encourage you to prioritize being here. Like before God, it is important to honor and celebrate his grace in our leaders and to pray for them and to think about what this means for us as a church. Tonight, I was thinking about it, is gonna be unlike any other gathering we've had as a church in at least 30 or 40 years. This is gonna be really significant. It's gonna be a powerful night of worship. I think we've got like 80 people who will be here on stage doing different things, choir and others doing things. It's gonna, it's gonna be awesome. I just wanna encourage you, don't miss it. If you need more details, mcleanbible.org slash installation, but that's tonight at 5 p.m. So, blind spots. We all have them. Areas of our lives where we're deceived and we don't know it. You know, when you're driving, you look in the mirror, seems like it's fine to change lanes. Unbeknownst to you, there is a car right next to you in your blind spot. So when you start to change lanes, they honk and you jerk back over into your lane. And you think, how did I miss something so obvious? Something easy to see in hindsight, yet easy to miss in the present. And other people can usually see blind spots in our lives more easily than we can. We need other people to point them out. But even then, something in us still doesn't want to see them. Sometimes that which is so obvious we don't want to admit even exists until it's too late. And this happens in our faith. Just think of the classic glaring blind spot of American Christian history, slavery. It seems unthinkable to us today. How could so many Christians who supposedly believe the gospel so easily rationalize subjecting slaves to deplorable conditions outside their homes? Churchgoers worshiping God every Sunday, reading the Bible all week long, all while treating men and women and children like property to be used and abused. 
And they actually thought they were generous to give their slaves an extra chicken at Christmas. Is that not frightening? Church involvement, regular worship, even study of the Bible do not prevent blindness in us. Part of our sinful nature still sees what we want to see and ignores what we want to ignore, especially when it's commonplace in the world around us. And I wonder if in our time in God's word today, he wants to open our eyes to a blind spot in in our lives and in the church today. We live in a world of urgent, dire need, both spiritually and physically. Spiritually, we know, we talk all the time about three billion people who've never encountered a Christian or a church to share the gospel with them. They are on a road that leads to eternal judgment and nobody's even told them about how much God loves them and how they can have eternal life with him. On top of physical need, about a quarter of the world, approximately two billion people, live in fragile context, which means they live in impoverished conditions and dire circumstances. Meanwhile, we in this gathering today are some of the wealthiest people to ever live in the history of the world. And I realize that in this gathering we have very varying levels of wealth in the different places where we are. And some I know are struggling financially. I don't want to minimize that in any way. At the same time, so let's just look at average. The average annual income in the U.S. is about $75,000. It's actually much higher in the area where we live right now. But if we just use that number, the average American is in the top 2% of the richest people in the world. Just to depict that graphically, when you look at wealth in the world, this is us compared to the rest of the world. And the reality is, if we have clean water, food, sufficient clothes, a roof over our head at night, a means of transportation, even if it's public, and access to a trained doctor, we are wealthy in this world. And to be clear, that's not bad. It's not reason to feel guilty. Yet how are we spending the money, the wealth that God has given us? And on average... North American Christians give about two and a half percent of our income to the church. So by our, here I mean North American Christians, we give about two and a half percent of our income to the church, which I think is probably a high estimate, but we'll go with it. And on average, North American churches give about 2% of their budget to ministry around the world. That's this little red line. 
that you can barely see. You put this together, out of all the wealth we have, this little red line is what we give to ministry around the world. Do you realize what this means? Like when you do the math, and I checked and double checked and triple checked this because I couldn't believe what it means, but it's true. Out of every $100 a North American Christian makes, we give five cents to ministry in the rest of the world. And less than a penny of that goes to the three billion people who've never heard the gospel. Feels kind of like an extra chicken for the slaves at Christmas, doesn't it? And I wonder if followers of Jesus, a hundred years from now, if Jesus hasn't returned, will look back at Christians in America today and wonder, how? How could they worship, sing, and study the Bible and live in such affluence while billions of people were going to hell without even hearing how they could go to heaven? Many of whom were living in impoverished, dire conditions on earth. Like they gathered for worship. They read the Bible. They sang the songs. They, they lived what they said were Christian lives. How could they keep prioritizing their comforts and their preferences to the neglect of so many people in need? Is it possible that this is a blind spot for us. I think we have to admit it's possible. So can we just ask God right now to open our eyes to see what he sees, even if it's something we may not want to see, even if it goes totally against the grain of what this world says is the way to live, even the Christians, in many ways in this world, say is the way to live? Could we just pray that right now? Can you bow your heads with me? And we're not here just to sing some songs, go through some, we're meeting with God. So God, we, we're asking you right now, please help us to hear your word and to see our lives and the world around us clearly in its light. And if this is a blind spot for us, please open our eyes to it. Jar us in any way we need to be jarred. And help us to course correct, no matter what that means. Knowing that there's part of us that resists seeing and part of us that resists acting on what you say. So we just we pray for your help, for your spirit to do in the next few minutes what only your spirit can do. We, we want you more than we want this world. What this world wants for us. You are wiser than the world around us. You're better, you love us. Help us to hear your word today as coming from your heart of love for us. 
We need your help, God. Please help us to hear, to see whatever it is you want us to hear or see and to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So let's hear the word of God. Straight from him, James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's strong language from God. So I want to try to summarize these verses in a sentence. And if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so, if this is, this is God's word, I would encourage you to write this sentence down. Here it is. In the hands of sinful people, wealth is deceptively, extremely, and eternally dangerous to us and to others. In the hands of sinful people, wealth is deceptively, extremely, and eternally dangerous to us and to others. So let's, let's test that sentence against the passage we just read. See if it's true. So is this just you talking, David, or is this, is this what God is saying? God said, come now, you rich, which leads to the question, wait a minute, does this mean anybody who's rich has misery coming on them. So if you're rich, which as we've seen compared to the rest of the world is most of us, so for most of us, this God saying misery is coming upon us. Let's honestly ask that question. Because if that's what this passage is saying, we need to hear that. We need to see that. And yet when you look at this passage and the whole of scripture, that doesn't seem to be what God is saying. There are examples all throughout the Old Testament. We need to be careful when we think about money, not just to look at Old Testament because there was a, a very significant shift in approach to money and possessions that we see in the New Testament. We can talk about that another time. But even in the New Testament, we see righteous, God-glorifying people with riches. And the Bible on a whole does not say that wealth or riches are bad in and of themselves. And this passage is clearly emphasizing the unrighteous use of riches. So, in the hands of sinful people, wealth or riches are deceptively, is deception not all over this passage? The rich don't realize that their riches are rotting and corroding. 
They, they think they're getting away with defrauding their laborers. They don't know that they're fattening themselves on the day of slaughter. Which leads to the next word here, extremely. Is this language not extreme? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Rich, wealthy people who are not honoring God with your riches and wealth, you should be weeping and howling because misery is coming upon you. Your flesh will be eaten like fire. That's extreme imagery. And eternally. This whole passage is pointing to the future. Part of the point of this passage is it's clearly saying what you see on this earth is not the end. The way you use riches here will have ramifications far beyond here. So in the hands of sinful people, wealth is deceptively, extremely, and eternally dangerous to us and to others. So don't, don't you see the danger? On both sides, you see danger in this passage for people who are being unjustly treated and neglected and exploited, even killed. And then in a sense, you see a deeper danger for the rich, the wealthy, who are neglecting those in need. So in the hands of sinful people, wealth is deceptively, extremely, and eternally dangerous to us and to others. Which leads to the question, are you a sinful person? Am I a sinful person? And the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of our lives shouts yes to that question. Which means that God is in a sense lovingly shouting to us right now, some of the wealthiest people to ever walk planet Earth, beware. The deceptive, extreme, eternal danger of the wealth you have. This is not how Americans think. This is not how American Christians think. We are accustomed to thinking of wealth as a blessing. God is saying to us right now, wealth, beware. It's dangerous to others, and it's dangerous to you. This is not what God is saying. So why is wealth so dangerous? And let's listen to what God is telling us in this passage, starting in verse 2 and 3. In the hands of sinful people, what does wealth do? Wealth leads to keeping more than you need. That's clearly the first specific indictment in this passage with imagery about riches that are rotting and garments that are eaten by moths, gold and silver that are corroding. All summarized in this last statement, you have laid up treasure in the last days. This is clearly an allusion to a parable that Jesus told where Jesus used the same language in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. You can look at this with me. I'll put it up here on the screen. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. 
And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Lays up treasure. That's the exact same language from James 5 here. Laying up treasure. Are we hearing this? Like what Jesus just denounced. Store it up so you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What Jesus just denounced is what our culture exalts. Like this is success in our culture. This is the dream for which we should live. Make money, store it up, so that when you're older, you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's success in our culture. Jesus says, you're a fool. Don't do it. You'll lose your soul. Now, we know from the whole of Scripture that it's not wrong or unrighteous to save wisely. As just one example, Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer, gathers her food in harvest. In other words, it's wise and righteous to work as God provides and save for reasonable, anticipated need in the future as we're able. At the same time, beware. This is some of the strongest scathing language in all the Bible, and it's aimed toward people who are filling their lives with more and more, newer, nicer, things they don't need, eventually things that are no longer even used, in addition to stockpiling reserves, all while ignoring present need around them. Which is the next reason wealth is so dangerous because in the hands of sinful people, wealth leads to neglect of others in need. When you see this language, you have laid up treasure in the last days. This language is so powerful because, again, wealth is dangerous to us. Like, we're in the last days right now. You and I, very soon, every single one of us could be today for any one of us. We're about to meet God as our judge. And Jesus could come back at any point. We have all these resources. James is saying, you're about to meet God and you've got all these resources that you're wasting or you're holding on to that you could have been using for good. Which then leads to this danger to others. Think about it, because they're also in the last days. They're also about to meet God. So I picture it this way, Jesus could come back at any moment and all these people who've never heard the gospel, when we could have gotten the gospel to them, we have the resources in the church to get the gospel to all of them, but, but you didn't. Instead, you stored up more for yourself and your stuff, and as a result, you're leaving them in an eternally dangerous position. So the point is, these are the last days for all of us. None of us are going to be here for much longer, which means there's not a lot of time. So give to people 
in dire need now for their good and for your good. Don't lay up treasure here. That's one option. Lay up treasure here in the last days. No, don't do that. Lay up treasure in heaven in these last days. We'll talk about this more specifically in a minute, a couple verses from now. But don't miss the point here. Wealth in the hands of sinful people leads to keeping more than you need. Is there any evidence of that in your life? And neglecting others in need. Is there evidence of this in our lives? Do we see this effect of wealth in the hands of sinful people? Which then leads to the next verse, verse four, and specific people in need, leaders who were, laborers who were working and not getting paid what they were due. So here's another danger of wealth in the hands of sinful people. Wealth leads to injustice and oppression when it's in the hands of sinful people. I'm gonna include verse six here. So first verse four specifically condemns any way in which those with wealth take advantage of or treat unjustly those who work for them and denounces any person or group of people who reap riches at the expense of the poor. This verse pointedly beckons anyone among us who employs others to ask if there are any voices calling out to God because of you. And then on a broader level, this verse highlights the power dynamic at play with those who have wealth. And it's a clear statement from God that he is the Lord of hosts, means the Lord of heavenly armies. He ultimately has all power. And anyone with any semblance of wealth and power in this world will answer to God for how we wield that wealth and power for others' good and particularly for the good of people who are poor or without power. Amen. To any or all extent that God entrusts, entrusts wealth and or power to us, we are responsible before God for using that wealth and or that power justly on behalf of those who are poor and or without power. And then you get down to verse six. You see how the sinful rich had condemned and murdered the righteous person. And there's some debate over what exactly this is referring to. Some Bible scholars believe this is a reference to Jesus, how he was murdered by those in power with wealth. Others believe this is a reference to martyrs in that day, eventually including James himself who were murdered by those in power with wealth. Regardless, it's a clear picture that in the hands of sinful people, wealth leads to both injustice and oppression. We see this throughout the history of the world. We see this throughout the world today, which means we all need to humbly and honestly ask, is there any way in which wealth in our hands 
is leading to injustice or oppression of others? That is a question worthy of prayerfully considering before God in your life, of openly discussing with your church group. Get together and ask, is there any way in which wealth in our hands is leading to injustice or oppression of others? All of that leads to two final ways that wealth is dangerous in the hands of sinful people. So one, in the hands of sinful people, wealth leads to overindulgence in the temporary and underinvestment in the eternal. Look at verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You see the emphasis here on the temporary? You lived... Like this earth, this world is all there is. And if this world is all there is, then absolutely. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Eat, drink, and be merry. If this world is all there is, then a materialistic lifestyle makes total sense. Get all you can. Enjoy all you can. Whatever you want, buy it. If you have more than you want, save it to make sure you have all you want in the future. So yes, go to school, get a job, retire well, and relax, indulge and enjoy as much as you can along the way. In other words, the American dream makes sense if America is all there is. But God is shouting, it's not. This country, this world, is not all there is. This country, this world is temporary. It's fleeting. It's just going to be here for a little bit longer. So don't live for it. Let me use this illustration. It comes from Randy Alcorn's book on money, possessions, and eternity. It relates, in a sense, to the slavery illustration from earlier. He writes, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War in the United States. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. Your plan is to move back North as soon as the war's over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate currency? If you're smart, there's only one answer you immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. You will keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. Then he continues, as believers, we have inside knowledge of a coming change in the worldwide economic situation. The currency of this world will be worthless at our death or Christ's return, both of which are imminent. This knowledge should radically affect our investment strategy. For us to accumulate vast earthly treasures in the face of the inevitable future is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money. It's not just wrong, it's stupid. And just for the record, we don't use that word around our house. <laughs> but it's the quote, and it's making a point. 
Why are you stockpiling Confederate currency when the war is about to be over? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have insider knowledge of a coming change in the worldwide economic situation. So let's live like it. Let's not live like the rest of the world and then tack on Jesus on Sundays. Let's live like we're living for another world. Like we're living for another country. A heavenly one where treasure will never ever fade. Instead of indulging in treasure that is transient, temporary, fleeting. It's the way the world works. The next thing, the newer thing, the nicest thing, instant gratification, order it on Amazon one hour, get it the next. And not just in the moment we think, I want to plan for when I'm 60 or 70 or 80 years old. Okay, as we discussed earlier, that's not all unwise. But our ultimate focus is not on where we'll be at 60 or 70 or 80. Our focus is where we and others will be 60 or 70 or 80 million years from now. Not how our investment's gonna look in a couple of decades. It's the way the world thinks. It's not the way we think. How are our, de- our investments gonna look in a couple of millennia? That, that'll change the way you spend money. And even to tie this with what we talked about regarding saving earlier, so one of the arguments, even Christian arguments, against giving now is investing so that you can give more later. And that's not necessarily wrong or unwise. At the same time, that kind of thinking can often and unknowingly assume that Wall Street is going to be able to outperform God in the long term. So sure, if you put $10,000 in the market now, it may, and I emphasize may, it may grow to tens of thousands of dollars later. And you can pull it out and 30 years and have tens of thousands of dollars to give away then, assuming you will actually be there in 30 years and assuming you will actually give it away in 30 years. Or what if you use that $10,000 now to support a church planter going into an unreached village? What if that church planter, by God's grace, leads influential people in that people group to faith in Jesus? And what if the gospel starts spreading among and through that people group in this area that was once hostile to Christianity? And what if this church that's now multiplying for the first time in that region starts sending missionaries to other people groups around it? And some of those other people groups that were once seemingly impossible to reach start coming to Christ. Now, obviously, 30 years from now, you wouldn't have tens of thousands of dollars to show for your investment, but you might have tens of thousands of believers. Would that be a wise investment? Do not overindulge in the temporary. 
and underinvest in the eternal and miss out on God's good design for wealth that he gives to you. Beware, wealth, when attached to a sinful nature, will lead you to totally miss it. And finally, wealth in the hands of sinful people leads to self-centeredness and self-destruction. So this is the last part of verse five. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So see the self-centeredness here? You're using your wealth to fill your heart's desires. You thought, oh, I want that. This will be good for me. I want this and that and more and nicer and newer. And you thought that would lead to more joy for you. you thought that, that's why you did it. That's why you're working for your good. But you don't realize where it leads. It's like, it's like drinking seawater. Seawater has a high concentration of salt. And you think, well, th that'll be good for me. I'm thirsty. But you, you drink this water, and the more you do, the sooner you dehydrate. If you keep drinking it, you start getting headaches, then dry mouth, then low blood pressure, rapid heart rate. Eventually, you become delirious. You go unconscious, and you die. It's amazing. You see water, and you think, that's what I want. But then you drink it, and unbeknownst to you, you're killing your body. This is more and more money, possessions in this world. You see it and think, I want it. You don't realize it's a trap. And the more you indulge yourself, the more you destroy your soul. It leads to self-destruction. That's not strong language when God has said, you're like cattle gorging on food, unaware that you're about to be slaughtered. That's the language God is using. And this is what happened under the judgment of God in the Old Testament. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? When we think about God's judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah, and our minds usually go to sexual sin there. What does Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 say? This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Overfed and unconcerned. Is this not a description of people who have so much and spend so little on the poor and needy. Is this not a description of us? Of the picture we looked at, this little red line, overfed, unconcerned. Overfed, unconcerned. Is God not opening our eyes to a picture of ourselves when left to ourselves and our sinful nature? Friends, we need the Spirit of Jesus to save us from ourselves. Amen. 
and our sinful nature and the spirit of this world. And the good news of the Bible is he has come to do just that. We need 2 Corinthians 8 9, the spirit of the one who by his grace, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor so that we might, his, by his poverty, might become rich. See how the gospel of Jesus totally transforms our use of riches. So for those of you who are visiting with us, maybe exploring Christianity, this verse summarizes the greatest news in all the world, the story at the center of the Bible, how we are all created by God for relationship with God. We're made to find our joy, not in more stuff, but in God. To find our satisfaction and security, not in more things in this world, but in the God who made us and the God who rules over this world. We were made for relationship with God, but all of us have turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways, one of which we've looked at today. And there's myriad others. And as a result of our sin against God, we deserve eternal judgment before him. But the good news of the Bible and the greatest news in the world is that God has not left us alone in this state of our sin. God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He left his riches and came to us, lived among us a sinless life. And then even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to be crucified for our sin, to pay the price for our sin against God. And then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are, what you've done, if you will trust in Jesus as the savior of your life, the Lord of your life, you will be forgiven of all your sin, restored to relationship with God through his poverty. You will become eternally rich in God. Everlasting pleasure and treasure waiting for you for millennia to come, starting right now. If you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to do that today. And when you do, and for all who have, let us stop living according to the spirit of Sodom. And let us start living according to the spirit of our Savior. Amen. So, what does this mean? Well, there's not a a playbook that says, okay, do exactly this, that. What we have is James' words to us earlier in this book. Don't just hear this word and walk away and your life look the same. That is not an option for followers of Jesus. What does it look like to put this word into practice? To say, I don't want to live deceived anymore with a glaring, extremely, eternally dangerous blind spot. I want to do, God, whatever you're calling me to do. Knowing knowing that what he's calling us to do goes 
totally against the grain of the world around us. Even the supposedly Christian world around us. For that imagery of slavery is helpful. Like it just seems so commonplace. Of course we do this. No, at some point, wake up and see it's a blind spot. We've got to make major changes. And how we give and use the wealth that God has given us. So let's hear him and let's obey him, believing that he is good. He's the best financial counselor in all of creation. He's better than any other financial counselor. He knows us. He's made us for joy. He's not saying this to us because he hates us. He's saying this to us because he loves us so much. And he wants us to experience life, life now and life forever. And not just us, but others around us to experience life. You will not regret trusting God with your use of possessions. So I want to give you a moment to start reflecting on a few questions. And I say start because surely this word from God requires more than a a minute or two of reflection. So I want to encourage you. Let these questions drive you into getting alone with God this week on your own, in your families. Then discuss in church groups with other brothers and sisters in Christ. What does this mean in our lives? Go before God and just ask these questions and and think not just, okay, kind of small in my life today, but, but big picture. Maybe even to think, okay, over the next month. So here's the questions. God How are you leading me to change my saving or spending patterns? God, how are you leading me to to change the way I save and spend money? God, how are you leading me to give more to that which is eternal? How are you leading me to invest in what will last forever more in my life? And specifically, God, how are you leading me to use wealth I have on behalf of the poor and oppressed, spiritually and physically? So with the spread of the gospel and the care of people's physical needs. Now, I just said, start asking these questions over the next month. And some of you are thinking, really, December? Like in light of all the spending that's already happened? spending What? better time when we take a holiday in the name of Jesus and turn it into a materialistic festival. What better time to say, we want the Spirit of Christ to drive us during this month. How how are you leading me to change my saving and spending patterns? How are you leading me to give more to that which is eternal? How are you leading me to use wealth I have on behalf of the poor and the oppressed? You will not miss Christmas by answering those questions and putting them into practice as the Spirit of Christ leads you. The question is, do you trust the Spirit of Christ to lead you? So, I want to give you a moment Spend some time just starting to reflect on these questions. Listen to his spirit speak to you. And then I or one of our location pastors will lead us together in prayer. You just spend some time with the Lord right now.
Oh God, we praise you for your love for us. Praise you for your love in sending Jesus to die on a cross for us, to be poor so that we might become rich. God, I pray for anyone in this room, online, who's never put their trust in Jesus, that this would be the moment. This would be the moment when they say to you, God, I need you to save me from my sins. I believe you love me so much that Jesus died on the cross for me. And trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of my life. God, I pray, I pray that people all across this room and others online would turn to you now, knowing tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today is the day of salvation. And as they do, and for all who know you, Lord Jesus, as Savior and Lord, we pray for your spirit to transform our minds and our hearts according not to the pattern of this world, but be transformed according to the ways of your word. God, we pray that you'd help us. Help us to hear from you as we continue to process this in the coming days alone and families and church groups. Help us to hear you and obey you, trusting you every step of the way that you're wiser, that you're wiser than this world. We love you, God. We praise you for loving us enough to tell us the truth and to open our eyes to blind spots and to course correct in ways that lead not just to life for us, but for life for others. And we pray that, that would be the fruit of what you've spoken today. Joy for us, good for others, and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.